Before this time, another year, I make it Bessie Jones with the Georgia Sea Island Singers, singing the old hymn, Before This Time, Another Year, ushering us into our text for this morning from Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. I want to read the whole thing, and then we will take a look at what this text meant then and what it means for us today. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. Here we go. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we get into this text, it's very important to know this. That today, this week, is the 21st Sunday that we have been doing church online or in some virtual way. This is the 21st Sunday, and there is no clear read on how or when this experience will come to a close. There is no closure in view 
at this time. Strange, isn't it? It was just becoming spring as we close the doors to our sanctuary. And it has been 21 Sundays. Sociologist Andy Crouch wrote early on in this process, in March even, this great piece called Living Beyond the Blizzard. It's a long piece, and it's about the new reality that we are now living in. And just a piece of that, just a sentence that I want to read here, it says, this is a time, Andy writes, to urgently redesign our work in light of what we believe is not just a weeks-long blizzard, not even a months-long winter, but something closer to the beginning of a 12- to 18-month ice age. Now, early on in this process, we made all kinds of mistakes, just like every other business, organization, and church across the world. We simply said to you in an email, hey, listen, we're going to close down for a couple of Sundays, let this virus blow through, and then when it's moved out to sea, we'll reopen as you were. That was our plan. And looking back, we just really laugh at how naive and how optimistic we were. And I should have known. As a Gen Xer, I should have been skeptical from the beginning. But here we are, 21 Sundays later. That's four, we're four, five weeks away from crossing that six-month line. And it's interesting because we are coming to grips with just how slow and uncertain a return to normal will be. Again, there's no closure in view. And we recognize as pastors and as people uh, how all of this has impacted every single part of life. Our friendships, uh, our work, parenting, school, education, and of course, our faith. We can't discount that. There's been an impact on the faith of people as well. And so with that, I want to welcome you to a little three-week teaching set that we are doing starting today titled A Distant Faith. It is about what faith looks like and feels like and how it works and doesn't work in a dislocated world during a dislocated time. And today's sermon title, if you will, is this, Faith in the Absence of Stability, which leads us back into our uh, passage from Jeremiah. There's a couple of background pieces that are very important to know that help this passage make more sense uh, to us as we read it. And let me set this up for you. Ancient Israel was both desirable as a piece of land because where it was located, Egypt to the south, Assyria, Babylon, other empires to the north. And it is filled with incredibly effective trade routes. A lot of riches move through Israel. It's a very desirable piece of land. It was also quite vulnerable as well. These aren't a lot of people, by the way. When we think about the nation of Israel, that word nation conjures up uh, images of some mass amount of people, but it wasn't anything like that compared to other surrounding nations. A vulnerable piece of land. 
I had an Old Testament professor tell me, uh, he said, listen, if there's any miracle at all, it's that Israel is still a thing, that it's still here. Because again, where it was, such a desirable piece of land and such a vulnerable people. And the capital city in the south of Israel was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was more than just a city. It was an idea. It was a theology. It was a place and a people of God. And right in the heart of Jerusalem was the temple built by Solomon. And the temple, every ancient civilization had one. The temple was the place and the presence of God among the people in Jerusalem. Both in a symbolic way, that when the temple is seen and engaged with, we are in the presence of God. And for many, it was the literal address for Yahweh, the residence of God among his people, the axis mundi, as we might say, where heaven and earth meet. That is what the temple was. Now in history, there are several events in the life of ancient Israel that are key in knowing in terms of how their story and narrative and develop, uh, theology develops through the years. And <clears throat> one of these stories is the siege on Jerusalem in 587 BC. It's the second time the Babylonians would come into the city and this second time they utterly destroyed the city. In 587 BC, troops move in, the city is destroyed, the walls come down, the houses, the buildings, the places of business come down. The people are exported out, mass deportations of people, packing up all that they had ever known, both in place and possession, and making their way into new unknown places, cities among the Babylonian region. And those who were left behind in Jerusalem, because there were a number of people that were left, were typically the poorest of the poor, so no structure of support in the city. It's just a death trap. And for some reason, some of the elite, the rich, were left behind. And one of the people that was left in Jerusalem was this man named Jeremiah. And part of what's happening in Jeremiah's book is that we are privileged to have these letters that Jeremiah was writing from Jerusalem, these dispatches to the exiles in Babylonian cities, giving them instruction, giving them hope, challenging them, encouraging them. And chapter 29 is one of those letters. And the setting for this letter is this general tone among the displaced exiles, which was this tone, of, uh, we can, this tone that we can all understand. There's this great sense of disorientation. Uh, there's also the issue of memory and grief, remembering the city, remembering where they had come from, this memory and grief, this also uh, very real desire for normalcy. Everything had been uprooted, so the general tone among the displaced is one of disorientation. And it's that desire for normalcy, it's that desire for a return to the way things uh, used to be that can cause and caused for these people and can be a cause for us to surround ourselves with voices who promise the things that we want. 
This is why in our own time we're seeing this with the pandemic. We listen only to certain politicians, only certain news outlets, only certain writers, thinkers, and influencers because they're telling us what we want to hear. They're telling us that we are right, and they are telling us things that make us feel comfortable, make us feel confident, and in some cases superior to everyone else. But Jeremiah's letter, at least this one in chapter 29, was very hard for the people to hear uh, because the setting here is simply that, and you have to go back into chapter 28 for this, but the setting here is that the people of Israel were being told uh, by these uh, people who were masquerading as prophets of God, they were being told that, hey, listen, this is only going to be two years. You're going to go home in two years. You can make it. And they begin to latch onto this promise. We're going home in two years, guys. This is great. Just hang in there. Don't even unpack your bags. We'll be out of here before you know it. And Jeremiah comes in and says, don't listen to them. They're lying to you. They're telling you what, what you want to hear. And they're telling you what you need to hear so that thy, they might gain more influence over you. Because Jeremiah comes in and says, it's going to be way longer than that. Now, there are three things uh, in this story that I want to point out. We'll just use a couple of verses uh, for each one. The first comes from verses 4, 5, and 6. These are the first words of the Lord that Jeremiah gives to these people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I had sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take Wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Very interesting command. But in summary, you can read it this way. What the Lord is saying to these people is settle in because you're going to be here for a while. I want you to live there like you actually live there. Uh, when I first took this job, uh, at this church as the pastor, it was 2007. And at that time, the church was meeting in an emptied out church building up on Peachtree Road. A church had essentially died and left that vacant. And so they were able to scrounge up a lease, but it was just a month to month lease. And the church had already been struggling somewhat in the theater uh, for a couple of years. And, and they moved into this building. And just before uh, I came on staff, uh, one of the pastors at the church called me and said, hey, can your dad, who owns a painting company, uh, can he come up and do some touch-up work in the building? It's got some scratches here on the wall, here and there. I said, sure. So I called my dad, and he went up there. And a few hours later, he called me back, and he said, listen, it's a mess in there. Um, we're just going to paint the whole thing, which led to I'm coming up there, and we're going to walk around and redesign this space. That's what we did. And it was interesting because the pastor at the time was like, is that really necessary? And I made this up on the spot. It completely just came out of nowhere. And I said, listen, I know we're temporary here. I know this is only a month-to-month -month lease. But there's something to be said for at least pretending that we live here. And so we will treat all spaces that we meet in as our own. And we will take care of them and we will paint them and we will make them look desirable. We will live here as though we live here. And this is what God is saying uh, 
to the exiles. It's not the best of situations. It's not permanent. But while you're there, I want you to live there like you actually live there. In verse 7, the second thing that happens here is very interesting. God continues saying, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare in the Hebrew text is the word shalom. Some versions say peace. And it is a peace, but not an absence of struggle, not an absence of urgency. It's not an absence of this need to be back to normal. It's not a peace like that. It's this well-being in whatever situation that you are in, the sense of contentment. In the unrest, God is saying, in the unrest, I want you to seek to be bringers of stability, not just to your own lives, but God says to the city in which you live. And so the message here is that God is still active among you. And God is still active among us regardless of what the situation looks like and feels like. And so the instructions here to the exiles are very important. Settle down. Live there like you live there. And while you're there, seek the best for the city. Seek stability and peace and shalom for all those in your reach. And finally, in verses 11 through 14, and I love these. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, that's that word again, shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah is reminding them that this will be a temporary stay. It's going to be longer than they once thought. But he's reminding them and he is teaching us in a way about this cycle of faith that all of us go through. And it's so often seen in the stories in the Bible, in the narratives and the unfolding storylines that we see all throughout Scripture this cycle of faith is present. And it works like this. There are three pieces to this cycle. The first is a sense of orientation, of what is, that we are oriented and settled in our faith, that we feel a sense of confidence in where we are. We're firing on all cylinders. We're praying well. We're reading our Bible well. We're loving people well. We are oriented in our faith. And then something takes place, normally external, sometimes it's internal, but something external happens to us or around us, and it sends us into this second part of the cycle, which is this piece of uh, the space of disorientation. We move from what is to what is no longer, and so we, we come to grips with this disorienting state uh, where we might find ourselves. Something is said, something is done. And it rattles our faith. It dislocates us from what was once more certain for us. And we enter into this uh, space of disorientation, this blizzard, if you will. 
We're lost. We're not quite sure what's happening. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't even know how we got here. But all of a sudden, things don't feel right. They don't feel certain. And how long we stay in that disorientated phase is unknown. I've known people who have been in this disorientation uh, space in their faith for years. Just wandering here and there, always seeking, always looking, always asking questions. Now, the disservice that the church has done and that people of faith have done is to say if you're in a disoriented state, there's something wrong with you, that something is weak about your faith. But this is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that when we are in the midst of instability, that we are reminded that there is a stable God who is with us in those times. And so we have to be careful with people and friends and loved ones in our lives when they are walking through a very disoriented time for them and their faith, that we are not to judge and say things like, well, there must be something wrong with you, or you shouldn't have done this or said that. You should have been in that place at that time. We all go through these cycles. And when we come out of that disoriented phase, we enter this reorientation phase. And this is about what is to come. This is about something that is new, something that we weren't expecting. And you can just count on that cycle repeating itself throughout the rest of your life. You'll be much happier, <laughs> much more in the know about how this faith, things, this faith thing works uh, if you can just settle in your mind that this cycle of orientation to disorientation to reorientation is going to take place over and over and over and over again. It just repeats itself time and time again. Now, we are currently, I would say, in the disorientation phase. Not just as a world, but as people of faith too. We're trying to figure out how this works now. And in the church, more specifically, uh, we're trying to figure out how this works at all. I mean, your church, Atlanta Christian Church, is trying to figure this out in real time. You are watching this happen as our pastors make decisions and create new ideas and put new things into place. We are literally disoriented and trying to figure out how to keep walking forward in this very tumultuous time. So, but we're all dealing with that. And on a personal level, our faith uh, can be dealing with that too. I think one of the great discoveries about the exile and the people of Israel is that, uh, and scholars would say, they do say, that this time in Israel's history was a time of great spiritual creativity. And the reason being is the temple, which stood for everything in their faith, the pre being present at the temple, uh, being able to see the temple or just knowing that the temple was there added the stability to your faith. And now that it's gone, there was this faith question, even this existential question among the exiles. How do we now practice our faith in the absence of a temple? Now, our building still stands. Nobody has torn it down. But you can say, how do we do church now? How do we do faith without the presence of a space where we can all be together and sing and take communion together. How do we do that? And in the exile, this very same question was being asked and rolled over in the minds 
of the people in the modern-day synagogue, the house of worship for our Jewish brothers and sisters, is largely seen as a product of the exile. There's no temple, so we're just going to have to improvise and come up with new things, new forms to feed our faith. I love that. I love that what came out of the exile is still continuing uh, today. And I think it's important for us to remember that the history of Israel, the people of Israel, they have something to teach us on making it through these long stretches of grief, of uncertainty, even danger. Their whole story within the Old Testament is a story of exile. The biblical story is almost entirely a story of the stability of God within a wandering life. The exile is the whole story. And so for us, it's important to remember that and not to try and fix this emptiness so quickly. Wandering and exile are birthing grounds for faith and growth, and we have to see that. We so often want to just turn the noise machine back on But there are times when silence and unknowing are the right places to be. And this is the time to get creative. Let me close with this very simple passage from uh, The Blue Parakeet, a book by Scott McKnight. It's a book club that I'm actually leading starting this week uh, with a number of people from the church. But there's this great little piece in the beginning. It's very simple. And I'll close with this. Um, One of the themes that we will encounter in this book can be summed up like this. McKnight writes, God spoke in Moses' days and Moses' ways, and God spoke in Job's days and Job's ways, and God spoke in David's days and David's ways, God spoke in Solomon's days in Solomon's ways, and God spoke in Jeremiah's days in Jeremiah's ways, God spoke in Jesus' days in Jesus' ways, and God spoke in Paul's days in Paul's ways, and God spoke in Peter's days in Peter's ways, And God spoke in John's day, in John's ways. And then he says this, And we are called to discern how God is carrying on that pattern in our world today. This invitation to be creative and to listen and to reflect on what new forms and new ways of doing faith are emerging. Grace and peace to you. Sometimes blue from Mary. Sometimes it's mother-in-law. Sometimes let's get on board. Sometimes I want to ball that jack. Sometimes I tell my honey come back. Sometimes I want to rap that jack. Sometimes I get a hump in my back. Sometimes I'm going over here. Sometimes I'm going to get my pal. Sometimes way down yonder. Sometimes get low the law. Sometimes blue from Mary. Sometimes it's mother-in-law. Sometimes let's get on board. Sometimes I'm gonna bowl that jack. Sometimes I tell my honey come back. Sometimes I wanna rap that jack. Sometimes I get a hump in my back. Sometimes I'm going over here. Sometimes I'm gonna get my pants.